How's everyone doing? Uh, happy Mother's Day to all you mamas. Uh, you know, I want to start off uh, with a little story uh, actually about my mom. I, I grew up uh, uh, in Longview, Washington, uh, in both Longview and, and across the river, the Columbia River, uh, in Oregon, this little small town called Rainier, kind of back and forth yo-yoed. Uh, my mom, uh, much of my childhood was with, uh, with my mom as a single mom. My mom and dad divorced when I was one. Uh, and um, if you guys have heard me talk before, you've probably heard me talk about my father, Alexander, who's a, who's a crazy curmudgeon that lives in Alaska off the grid. Um, but I don't want to talk about him today. I want to talk about my mom. Because I want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in, in the church. Uh, because there's a lot of confusion around the Spirit. There's a lot of abuses when it comes to hyper-charismatic movements, and there's a lot, of, a lot of ignoring kind of pendulum swings on the other side. I always say that there's some churches it seems like it's, it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and no Scripture. And the other side, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Uh, and that the only safe place for the Spirit is relegated to illumination of the Scripture. Um, and I think that there's a I think that there's a, a, a biblical way that we can go about it that actually brings a robust uh, meaning for what it means to be a spirit-filled community. Um, and how I want to begin talking about uh, the necessity of the Holy Spirit to navigate the insanity of existence, uh, I want to just share a little story about my mom. You know, when I was little, I struggled a lot with, with a lot of fear, and I think it just had to do with a very unstable um, home life when you have a mom that's working all day as a single Mom, uh, I remember we were brought, my brother and I were brought to this babysitter house who had a teenage boy who told me, because he was cruel, <laughs> that the devil was going to come up to the floorboards in my bedroom at night when I went to bed. Well, the devil did come up to the floorboards at night, every night, uh, which would bring me to night terrors, and I would cry out for my mom and wake her up exhausted because she was working two jobs, and she would come in and stroke my damp hair and sing every night when the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. The Carpenters, every night, Karen Carpenter, close to you. Close to you was the song my mother sang over me. Um, and she bought me uh, this painting because she realized that if the devil didn't go, uh, she was going to lose her mind. Uh, <laughs> and she bought me this famous painting uh, by an Austrian painter named Hans Zatzka. Have you guys seen this before? Uh, of course you have. It's called The Guardian. There's lots of different versions of it, but he was, uh, he was a guy that uh, his, his pseudonym was Zabateri, and this was painted in 1918. And you see it portrays these two children on a rickety bridge, beautiful Germanic female angel, hovers behind with her long flowing blonde hair, star above her head, arms spread in protection and out of her flowing white and blue robes, two magnificent white wings. But for some reason, there was something about that picture that eradicated the night terrors uh, for me. And it was like my mom would tell me, she's like, this is just a picture of what's actually here for you. There's a protector here. I'm your protector, but when I'm in bed, <laughs> she's your protector. <laughs> So please talk to her. No, she didn't say that. Um, well, a, a year after this picture was given, my mom um, ended up falling in love with this man who was not an awesome man. He kind of looked like, uh, I always say that he's sort of the, uh, the archetype of like the bad, the bad parent. And that might be more of my imagination and my memory than 
than in reality. I think, I think what was truly there is that the, he was just a man who wasn't around. But we moved uh, to Rainier, Oregon, and we lived literally in the shadow of this massive, it was at the time America's largest cantilever bridge that went from Longview to Rainier, Oregon. And we lived literally below the bridge uh, in a single wide trailer. So I was a, a, a very poor, <laughs> uh, quintessential poor mill town, depressed mill town uh, kid who spent a lot of time in trailers and kind of, kind of fondly think of trailers. Uh, not so fondly of this one though. Uh, this man uh, began having an affair almost immediately uh, after my mom uh, married him. And I remember my brothers and I, and my brother and I um, just lived with a lot of fear at, at this house. It was a very tense, tense place. But there was one particular night, uh, as I would say, uh, it was the witching hour. <laughs> and the trailer sitting beneath the shadow of the bridge in the darkness uh, outside in the claustrophobic hall outside of our bedroom, uh, we could hear my mom scream. And my brother and I were hiding under the bunk bed, and she was screaming at this man, who was my stepdad, because he had been sleeping with a young 18-year-old woman, unbeknownst to my mom. My mom was super young, and they were in their early 20s. Uh, and yelling and scuffling, and there was a crash against the wall. And the smell of fear was rising from our racing hearts in the dark of that room, so real I could taste its metallic presence, even as I think about it today, 39 years later. He had killed her. I knew it. All had gone silent, and I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't survive without her. And I remember praying in, under my breath, please, Mama, don't be dead. Please don't be dead. And my brother trembled in my arms, and time literally had been stilled. Each agonizing second was a lifetime lived, and I was ancient in a moment. And the door flew open, and I closed my eyes, bowed in existential dread. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice, Joshua, Jared, get dressed. Beneath the moon, we moved through the field, and the warmth of my mother's hand and voice reassuring us as we began our pilgrimage across the cantilever bridge at like midnight. And the inky river far below and the narrow sidewalk and the creaking still wind shaking from the occasional semi carrying loads of fresh cut lumber and the binding, blinding headlights of oncoming cars reminding us that heaven and hell hung in the balance. But as frightening as the journey seemed, I could not shake a strange sense of peace, even joy within this unknown of the night. This was an exodus toward at least a momentary salvation. My mother speaking those comforting words, don't be afraid, I am with you. I see in that, it makes me emotional to think about what my mom endured. Uh, and, you know, we can't escape our histories, but we can find, as I talked about yesterday, little graces in everyday moments. And in that moment, my mom was the comforter. She was the helper. She held my hand. She walked me across this terrifying bridge. I mean, this bridge is a massive bridge. It's, over, it's, it's like a half a mile long, and it is really high. And the sidewalk is super narrow. People aren't even allowed to walk over it anymore they, because it was so unsafe. And the bridge would shake when trucks would come over it. And I just remember, like, there was this freedom that 
mom was leading us out of this very difficult situation. She was bringing us into safety. But even as she walked us across the bridge, there was still this sense that one step to the right or left would be a horrible decision. But she kept us on the path. People often wonder what the question of, like, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? And what is the Holy Spirit? And I think that the Spirit, and I'm not trying to paint the Spirit as a Germanic angel <laughs> or as my mother. I'm not trying to reframe the shack for you. Uh, <laughs> but I never read that book um, because I'm a literature snob. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I actually wasn't even interested in the theology. It was just the moment people tell me, everybody loves this book. I'm like, yeah, I'll never read that. I'll never read that. I have a rule of thumb. Don't read anyone unless they've been dead for 20 years. You cannot trust anyone until they have stood the test of time. <laughs> it's the contrary, and it's the Gen X in me. Millennials don't understand that. Uh, so, I, but but I, I, I've often asked the question, uh, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled community? And I, and I think in terms of that story is I, I think that Jesus said, it's good that I go to the Father. For if I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the spirit of truth. And when you think in terms of what the spirit does is he comes to bring the community of us broken men and women who are walking mixture <laughs> For even the things we do in the power of the Spirit is still ultimately mixture. But it doesn't mean that Jesus just saves us in our sin and leaves us there. The gospel is not primarily about God getting us out of, out of hell and into heaven. The gospel is primarily about God coming down from heaven. It's a down-to-earth story. It's about God coming down into our very lives where we, as his children, become literally the temple of God where the Spirit of God comes into our lives and makes his home within us. And if we don't believe that, if we think that's some sort of like childlike fantasy, you know, when you pray to receive Jesus into your heart, that's not a, that's not a cliche. It may be overly familiar, and I, just so you guys know, I remember I preached uh, at, if you can imagine this, I didn't wear my awesome clogs. Uh, takes, a, takes a strong man to wear clogs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I, I preached actually at Green, at, at, is it Green Acres? Yeah. I got lost in, what is that building? It's an insane <laughs> building. I like, was like, where does the hallway end? Where am I? It was like, but I, I, I preached in there, and David Dykes came up to me after I was done preaching. It was for the Luis Palau Renew Festival. It was the same weekend I was doing uh, The Mockingbird. And, uh, um, and David Dykes came up to me and goes, I know Portland is hard. I know it's a, it's a pagan place, and I'm sure that the ministry is very difficult there. But it's hard here, too. He goes, because here we have sermon-saturated pagans. Is that a wise, is that an accurate saying? I've traveled enough in the Bible Belt to know the truth of that statement. And I think that often the most dangerous place to be is so close to the truth that you don't actually find it. That the most dangerous place to be is that, yes, you may have just enough faith to be saved, but not enough faith to live victorious. That the goal of the Christian life is not working toward victory, we are working from it. That all that needs to be done has been done in Jesus, and we're to live with that reality each and every day, but the way that we do it is by the Spirit. Look at this verse in John 14, verses 16 and 17, because here is where we find the community of the Spirit, where the power of it is. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, 
It says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Notice what it says, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And, and what Jesus is saying, and right now, because I'm with you, you're experiencing the presence of the spirit. Because what made Jesus' life so offensive? Was it that they saw God? I would argue what made Jesus' life so offensive is that his enemies, the crowds, the people around him, they didn't see God. They saw man as God intended man to be. They saw true spirit-filled man. This is why the scripture refers to Jesus as, not that Jesus isn't God, but he was God cloaked in humanity and flesh. God entered into the human predicament. He actually identifies with us in our lowest point, our sin. It says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is that Jesus actually enters in. It says that he left the glory that he had, that he submitted himself to the full weakness of sinful flesh without sinning. It's a fabulous and fascinating concept. It's actually the thing that makes Christianity for me. It's what brought me to faith, what made it compelling, is that Jesus needed to be God enough to save me, but he needed to be man enough for me to relate to. I needed to be able to see, how could I put my faith in one that doesn't understand the story I just told about my mom? about what it means to live in a broken home and what it means to be an insecure kid whose sins would wave up and take over my, my, my mind in ways that, that led to so much failure, so much brokenness, so much pain. And if God can't understand my pain, how can I put my faith in him? I don't want a God that's detached from human suffering. I want a God who understands it. I don't need an explanation for suffering, but I do need to believe that God is bigger than my suffering and able to carry me through it, bring peace and hope in the midst of it. I always say that the default setting of the human heart is to return again and again to the false idea that our freedom can be found in some sort of heroic ascent. <laughs> but the world calls it self-improvement. The church often confuses it with spiritual formation, and all of us in one way or another succumb to its fatal philosophy. Why do we believe that we can climb our way out of the mixture? I could never have crossed that bridge at night on my own. I would have been too scared. I needed a helper. I needed someone to hold my hand. In the Spirit of God, if my mom was a good helper, how much more the sinless Spirit of God who comes to dwell within our lives as a guide. You see, I think that the reason that the vast majority of Christians live with this over their heads, saved soul, wasted life, is that because we spend the majority of our times, we got just enough faith to get out of the slavery of Egypt, but like the children of Israel, we spend our whole existence wandering in the wilderness because we think the promised land is that future event in the redeemed body when the promised land is actually the victorious life of Christ right now. Amen. And that's the reality. We are called, as Major Ian Thomas, one of my favorite British preachers, he said, he goes, enter into this hilarious adventure where you live, enjoy heaven on the way to heaven. Because he would argue that what makes heaven, heaven, is allowing the adequacy of the Holy Spirit to fill you with the fullness of Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And I think that this is, the, the problem is, is that when we become born again, that is actually when we become free. But freedom actually creates the possibility of misuse. The moment you have freedom is the moment you actually have responsibility of how you handle that freedom. And it's not the freedom to do what we want. It is the freedom to begin to live a daily surrendered life so that the spirit can work in and through us in spite of the mixture. The mixture doesn't go anywhere. Luther said it best. He said, God saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? And honestly, the closer you get to Jesus, the more acutely you will be aware of your sin and your shortcomings because it's meant to lead us to a place of continual confession, continual reliance upon Jesus because you will know deeply in your heart, the more you yield to him, I cannot do this without you, but all that needs to be done has already been done in and through you. Holy Spirit, lead me. I said, Jesus says, follow me. He never says where he's going. And honestly, it doesn't matter as long as he's leading. And that's why I'm happy to say he's leading us to Tyler. <laughs> I want him to lead. Darcy and I desperately want Jesus to lead us to Tyler, Texas, because it is so free here. You guys have real freedom. We're still, we're still paranoid mask-wearing Nazis. <laughs> we're like... The city can burn, but you keep that mask on. <laughs> it's like apocalypse now there, and yet we have one of the lowest death rates in the nation, but we're all dying. <laughs> we're not happy. I'm like, can't we just die and be happy? <laughs> oh, a life of freedom can only be lived in the shadow of the cross. And that's what the Spirit, the community of the Spirit, when Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, and think about this. He's just told the disciples that he's leaving them. Think about the heaviness of their hearts at this idea. Let not your heart be troubled is what he says right after he tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times. Don't be troubled by that. That's the whole reason I'm here. Of course you're going to fail me. That's why I'm going to the cross. But he's, he said it's good that I go. And I think that what he is pointing us to when he says you know him for he dwells with you, he's saying he dwells with you by the fact that I'm with you. You are seeing the spirit-filled life by, your, by me being with you, but it's going to be better because I am going to be in you by my spirit. He will be in you. The community of the spirit, this is what I like to refer to as the good death. If you want a spirit-filled life where you don't just wander your Christian existence in the wilderness, because listen, the world is not looking to us to see how disciplined we are, how little we swear, how faithful we are to our spouses, how, how daily we read our Bibles and we do our, our, uh, our weekly Bible studies and we have our community groups and we, 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 we're so orthodox, you know, we're so balanced, we're not extreme, you know, we're not doing crate, we're not dropping gold dust from the ceiling. Uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not looking for the sensational, you know, we're good Southern Bible-believing Christians. Is Texas even really the South, though? It's a question that I, I think it might be its own country altogether. Uh, <laughs> and a great one it is. I have toured every, every inch of this, this state. Every time I would tour here, it would take me like two months because there are that many megachurches. It's insane. <laughs> and it's, so, it's the only state I've ran out of gas like three times <laughs> on tour, <laughs> always in West Texas. It's that, that weird stretch between Dallas and Abilene. You're like, like the, just the no man's land of every Cormac McCarthy novel. It's amazing. Uh, 
But I think about this, what it means to be that spirit-filled community is this idea that you and I are not looking to the world to find our satisfaction. We're not called to escape the world as Christians. Church is not a place where we live cloistered from the outside world. In fact, Christianity is the only organization that exists for the good of those outside its walls. And the power of the community is not all of your daily disciplines. The power of the community is what it looks like when we live radically in dependence upon God's spirit to manifest the very love of Christ in and through us. What draws people in is the reason Darcy and I are drawn to Tyler. There is a natural uh, goodness in, in the South. It is true. It's like Southern hospitality is not like a... That's not a false thing. I mean, we drove to church today and there's a woman walking on the side of the road and she just like, big smile, like just waves at us. We're like, why are you waving at us? But it's, I love it. I'm so grateful. Because in Portland, we're like, we do not wave. We walk to the other side of the street because you might kill me with COVID. Uh, and, uh, and we're like, and, and we don't have time. There's too much anxiety, too much pressure uh, in, in the city, uh, in, in, in the Northwest. And there's, there's too much too much internal focus and inward gaze. But let me be clear, it's not our goodness either that's compelling or even our kindness, but it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's presence. It's, it's what a group of Russian uh, kids said to me when I was on a mission trip uh, in uh, Volgograd, and there was this group of girls that followed us everywhere. And I, I turned to them uh, through my Translator, I said, I go, why are you guys following us everywhere? And they said, we're following you because there's so much light in you. And what's funny is like, we don't see the light in ourselves and I don't think we're supposed to because the Holy Spirit is constantly pushing us out of ourself into a world that is broken, giving us the power as a community to be in the world but not of it. As Jacques Ellul says, it, that the Spirit gives us the power to elude the world's systems while being a conduit of grace and witness to, the King, to King Jesus. As that movie we watched the other night, for those of you who are at Mockingbird, Electric Jesus, the line in it, Jesus doesn't need to, you to make him famous, he already is famous. Uh, and that's true, we don't help Jesus uh, uh, we don't help Jesus do his work. We become conduits of his work as we yield to him. He does the work in and through us. That is the power of the gospel. And this is what it means to be a spirit-filled community. We're not turning to the world to be filled. That's why Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. He's talking about influence. Wine, being filled with wine is an influence. Wine is a symbol of joy in scripture, but it's also consistently warning that it is a massive influence and too much can take control and you don't act like yourself. I believe that the spirit taking control actually helps us to act like we are meant to be, spirit-filled human beings. And this is the power of what it means to be a spirit-filled community. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It's not this belief that the spirit is a power to be wielded. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The Holy Spirit is is a person in the Godhead, one to be submitted to, one to be worshipped. Now, the 
the question is, is why don't we talk more about the spirit? People talk about the spirit being the forgotten one in the Trinity. I don't actually think that's true. I think that what is going on is that the spirit is the shy one in the Trinity because the spirit's primary role is to redirect our attention again and again to Jesus. But we still need to be aware that without the spirit, we're not going to be able to meet with the living Christ. And so the spirit, I, I, Dale Bruner did this amazing picture. Uh, he's a great theologian, wrote probably the best commentary ever on Matthew. He, I saw him speaking, he had a chalkboard, and he just drew a little picture, a uh, stick figure, and wrote Jesus. And he said, this is the Holy Spirit. And he went behind the chalkboard and reached around and just kept pointing at the, at, at the stick figure. He said, that's a picture. I think that one of the signs of the spirit being in us as a spirit-filled community is that it creates a community of vulnerability. When you see a community that is truly spirit-filled, it creates a radical vulnerability. I think if the church was actually to function more like an apostolic picture of the church, what we see in the book of Acts, it would function more like an AA meeting. And I think that this is the challenge for the Bible Belt, is that much of the lens by which we consider our evangelicalism is driven by a lens that's very much true to our national identity. But just remember, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as a Republican or a Democrat. He's not coming back as an independent. He's not coming back as a socialist. He's not coming back as, as a communist. He is coming back as a dictator because he's the Lord of Lords. And our allegiance is, it's not God and nation, friends. That's a false dichotomy. It is God, absolute allegiance to Jesus. I will be grateful for the country I live in, but I am not beholden to any system because kingdoms of man come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. Seek first his kingdom and all these things shall be added to you. What a sad year of, of just unbelievable political unrest, racial unrest, uh, a pandemic, we had fires. We had, we also, I'll just say, you know, we got hit almost as hard as you guys with the ice storm. We lost power for four days and lived in darkness. And it was really cold. We were not prepared for that. <laughs> and neither were you. <laughs> so, and, and, and I just think of like all this, it, it feels apocalyptic. And it is apocalyptic because the world cannot sustain itself at the rate it is going. And it desperately needs now more than ever to see a people that rise up and witness to the world of who Jesus is. And we cannot do that without one another, and we absolutely cannot do it without the Spirit leading us, guiding us, directing us, pointing us again and again to Christ. And he does that by pointing us again and again to one another. This is a beautiful reality. An AA meeting is that picture of absolute safety, isn't it powerful that, that, and I think this is where this where spirit-filled community really begins to live out the gospel, is if we were to be really, truly apostolic, we would begin probably each service and say, hey, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner. <laughs> it's because I would argue that the only thing that a saint is, is a sinner that's been forgiven and is aware of it. Uh, and so think about Alcoholics Anonymous. What do they say? My name's Josh, I'm an alcoholic. Why do they say they're an alcoholic? Because they're trying to continue the pattern of drinking? 
No, it's the confession in the context of community, a community that says, I believe the best for you. And it's the ability to, to come into, this, into a community to recognize, the first step is recognizing that you cannot help yourself. You cannot do this on your own. It's the opposite of what our society calls us to. Everything in our society and our culture is telling us to believe in ourselves, to put our hope in ourselves, to discover the God within us. But we make terrible gods, friends. The worst master you will ever serve is yourself. And the best way to get out of self is to recognize, to communicate, to confess that you can't do it. And so the alcoholic uh, who says, I'm an alcoholic in the context of AA, finds their freedom from their alcoholism by the admittance, the confession of the struggle, which then gives them the, and the, the trust and the acceptance of the community that gives them the power to rise above it. How much more should we be experiencing that kind of freedom, true freedom, the freedom that comes from being born again? But we can be a blockage to the Holy Spirit because we treat the Spirit like a force to be wielded rather than someone to be surrendered to. And the idea of our surrender is played out in how we live out life together. I think it, I always joke, there's this new movement uh, in many urban centers around spiritual disciplines in, in kind of the almost... Uh, uh, almost like some sort of new monasticism where we need to get back to, you know, those practices of silence and solitude. And, and I'm like, I don't know, a year of COVID has shown me that solitude is definitely not good for people. Uh, and, and it may be true that we should be slow to speak, but it's also true that we should be quick to confess, quick to forgive, and quick to share Jesus. I like to say sin leaves the body, salvation enters the soul, and Jesus is introduced by the mouth. And the world is not compelled by our pretense or our silence, but our radical vulnerability, i.e. our honesty about our sin and our loving witness to the king. That is when the spirit moves in power. Community of the spirit. The company of the spirit is also something that we need to think about. John 14, 26 through 27 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus is calling his disciples to experience his peace. He is talking about a peace that he has in that moment as he is about to face the, his brutal murder. He is going to be arrested and beaten beyond human recognition and nailed to a cross. And he says, I have joy, I have peace, which tells us that the peace that the gospel offers is not the peace that the world is seeking. And this terrifies me. I believe this is one of the great signs of an apocalyptic age. And if you think it's weird that I think Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime, I would argue that the apocalyptic age began the moment the incarnation happened and that Jesus expected his followers to believe and live with, a, with an eternal expectancy that Jesus would come back at any moment. And let me just tell you, we're closer today than we were yesterday. And when we look at where society is, I am telling you right now, one of the great prophetic books 
probably ever written was by a Russian guy who was a massive influence on Dostoevsky. In 1890, he wrote a book called The Antichrist. His name is Soloviev. And in that book, he describes the rise of the Antichrist as one who believes in the gospel, believes in Jesus, is eloquent beyond nature, who is persuasive in his belief in the brotherhood of all men, who brings about a strong conviction wherever he goes that it is possible to create heaven on earth. And I'm telling you, Christians by the droves would surrender their faith in the gospel in a heartbeat if they thought it would bring peace to this world right now. We would give up Jesus so fast. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus does not promise us peace in our lifetime. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That he does not say, I promise to give you bread, physical bread to eat every day because millions of people that love Jesus go without it every day. He promises bread from heaven. If you guys have ever read Dostoevsky's um, great masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov, I think he's a terrible writer and a genius thinker. I actually, I really hate Dostoevsky. And I'm old enough to just say, I don't care if he's considered the greatest novelist of all time. I'm right to have my opinion. I think his prose sucks. Um, <laughs> but I think he's one of the greatest thinkers into human behavior. And, and he saw with eyes wide open what Soloviev was saying, and he wrote into that masterpiece, his greatest piece is actually in the middle of that book called The Grand Inquisitor. And The Grand Inquisitor is a, is a parable that Ivan, uh, who is the atheist brother, uh, speaking to Elosha, who's the Christ-like figure in the book, and he's telling Elosha, I cannot believe in a God that would allow human suffering. And Elosha says, I don't try to understand human suffering, and because of that, I'm able to love humanity because I believe God cares. You can't trust in God because of suffering, and you do nothing for humanity. And so Ivan tells him this parable of the Grand Inquisitor, and Jesus comes back to Spain during the Inquisition, and the Grand Inquisitor, he's going about doing miracles and signs again, and he is arrested by the Catholic Church. Dostoevsky did not like the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> And, and in this story, it's fascinating, there's this long, confusing dialogue between the Inquisitor um, and Jesus himself. And he says to him, he says, we don't want your bread from heaven because we can give the people real bread. And therefore, you must die. And Jesus kisses the Inquisitor before he kills him again. And I think that this is a picture of what Dostoevsky saw was his concern was what Soloviev, Soloviev actually believed that Tolstoy was the prototype of the Antichrist because Tolstoy wanted to exercise uh, the gospel by demystifying it, removing the deity of Christ and just simply applying the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount to everyday existence. This is what the church is clamoring after right now in places like Portland. There is an absolute removal of the cross and the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit because what we want is justice. Justice at any cost. Christians celebrating the conviction of Derek Chauvin. May, I saw an Instagram text from believers, may he rot in hell. And I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure 
that if you were a spirit-filled person, you would know that you are no better. That Jesus died for George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and all the rest of us. And when we measure ourselves next to the beauty of Jesus, we are not that much off from Hitler. <laughs> now, from a human perspective, you may say, no, no, I am really, and it's true. He was really, really evil and had a horrible mustache. It's absolutely true. But the fact is, when we put Christ next to us, the gap between us and the worst human being that's ever lived becomes this slim. As my friend, uh, at, one, he's not my friend, I wish he was, Charles Price, one of my favorite preachers, once said, he said, listen, sin is not a measurement of how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you are not. He said, let me give you an illustration. You miss the bus by five minutes. Someone else misses it by 25. You don't turn to them and say, I only missed it by five because you both stink and miss the bus. And that's why we need a gospel that comes down to earth. And that's why we cannot surrender the heavenly bread and the power of the spirit because we need the spirit to navigate the unbelievable influences of this age. This passage right here tells us how important it is that we pay attention because I promise you, if peace is possible any other way than the cross, humanity will grab a hold of it. And I believe so will the church. We're told in the last days, the love of many will grow cold, that men will heap up for themselves teachers that will scratch their itching ears that there will be constant learning without ever the ability of coming to a knowledge of the truth because knowledge of the truth for us is not more information. It is personal, relational. The greatest and scariest statement Jesus ever makes is away from me, I never what? Knew you. How does he define eternal life in John 17? This is eternal life, that they may what? Know you. The living God and Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent. The Spirit brings to remembrance. Notice what it says. Spirit doesn't promise utopia on earth. The Spirit brings us back to the suffering servant. The Spirit is continually pointing us to Jesus. This is where I get frustrated with my really charismatic friends who are constantly after the sensational, looking for the new sign, the new wonder, the new vision, the new dream. There are prophecy schools popping up. It's the other extreme <laughs> where you can learn to you know, engage in holy laughter. And I've only had holy laughter once and it was on drugs, so I don't think it was holy. <laughs> and so I think that this is, a, this is a reality. If it doesn't point us to Jesus, it's problematic. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. It says in Proverbs 20, verse 27, which means that we are intended for the spirit of God to be the humanity that God intended us to be. And what we have to learn as Christians is that we have to learn how to become the Christians that we are. And what I mean by that is if Christ is in you, the moment you are born again, being filled with the Spirit is not you getting more of the Spirit. It is the Spirit getting more of you, getting more control of you. That's why Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Uh, Majorian Thomas said this. He said, the Holy Spirit is restored to your human spirit as a forgiven sinner. His office is to reinvade your soul, to reestablish the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus in the area of your mind, of your emotions, of your will, so that your whole human personality can become available to him. He has come to re-inhabit your redeemed humanity that your body might become the temple of the living God. 
It doesn't mean that you're not going to have, you know, thieves in the temple at times. It doesn't mean that you're not going to fall into the trappings and the persuasiveness of the, of the, the, the many multitude of voices that are consistently vying for our affection because the human heart is an idol factory. This is why it is so essential that we are spirit-filled people in the context of community. The company of the spirit, we are told to test the spirit because I believe that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Weird, I believe that. It just happens to be what the scripture said, and you guys just went through that in Ephesians but it is against principalities of darkness and the rulers of this age. And I believe that there are sp- the spirits of darkness' greatest work is in the church. Without question, the greatest damage the devil does is through believers. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, a believer can't be, a believer can absolutely be influenced by demonic realities. Nothing is sadder than God's children being used as Satan's tools. And the fact is, is that as the Spirit, how do we test the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will bring us again and again to Jesus. That's why I say, I don't care what the Spirit told you. If it doesn't point to Jesus, I don't trust it. If it isn't supported in Scripture and pointing to the living Christ, there's something problematic. Because the Spirit of this age could say, this is the way to peace. This political movement is the answer. This ideology is the answer. I do love that the first billboard I saw in Texas was, China Joe's got to go. Really? <laughs> Only in Texas. But I'm sure we had something just as obnoxious about Trump when in Portland. I'm like, the United States is crazy right now. I, seriously, everyone on the right thinks everyone on the left's a communist, and everyone on the left thinks everyone on the right's a Nazi. And the fact is, we've never, most of us have never met a communist or a Nazi. My grandma's going to vote for Trump because he's pro-life. doesn't matter what kind of person he is. She is the greatest person I have ever known. I keep telling my people that. Like, it offends me <laughs> when, you, when you turn your faith into a side, a political movement. It's not that. Man, the, the, the kingdom of God is about the righteousness of Jesus that comes to unrighteous men and women, broken people like you and I. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to understand this, the mission of the Spirit. John 16, verse 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. This doesn't mean that he uses the church to tell people they're bad. Because look what he says. And concerning, and world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But look what he says. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit comes and tells people they're bad people. You're bad because you did this, because selective sanctification is the only thing that can come out of, of, of picking particular sins. This is sin, a red-handed rebellion against the, against the authority of Jesus. And so you can be sitting in the church week after week, having all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, when in fact, you still are very much the one in control of your life. That is the essence of sin. The little things that we do wrong is the manifestation of a sin condition. And this is why the Spirit, when he says here, it's not the Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin by pointing out, hey, you got a filthy mouth, or hey, you're a pervert, or hey, this or that. That's not what the Spirit does. No, the Spirit convicts the world of sin by showing them the love of Christ, for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's why I do not trust any theology or any preacher that seems to be excited about people going to hell. 
And believe me, I've heard a few. It's either one extreme, there is no judgment, or man, I'm so glad I'm one of the frozen chosen. That is not, listen, the logic of election is not God choosing some and rejecting others. The logic of election is he chose you so that through you he could reach all. That's the logic of election. That's what he said to his disciples. You didn't choose me, I chose you. But what does he tell them to do after he chooses them? Go, therefore, into all the nations, making disciples. Why did he choose Israel? To reject everyone else? No, I choose you, Israel, that you might be a nation of priests to the world. The problem is that they turned it in upon them. We turn, we're the ones that turn the logic of election into irrational ideas about God. God's love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin, and for that you should be grateful. And this is why the Spirit is the great comforter. He doesn't come to make us comfortable, but to make us missionaries. The Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a missionary spirit. He is bringing the reality of Jesus of, concerning sin and righteousness judgment, because, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Notice the Spirit shows the world through Jesus, when Jesus is lifted up, that they cannot save themselves because he goes to the Father and because and what does he say at the end? And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That is that great profound statement I made in the beginning that comes from Luther. All that must be done has been done. Jesus didn't make salvation possible. He actually accomplished the total saving work for the world. Doesn't mean all will be saved. And I always say that what we are presenting to people is not so much make a decision for Christ. What we are calling people to do is to say yes to the yes that God has already declared over them in Christ. The powerful reality of the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, you guys, we will tremble in fear in the upper room without ever leaving. So interesting, we're in an upper room right now. And you picture the disciples praying praying that God would send the one he promised. They don't even understand what that means. And when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, what was it like? A wind that filled the room, but it wasn't like the wind. If you think back to Elijah, God was not in the wind. He was in the still, soft voice. The wind, to me, speaks of a whisper, and a whisper speaks of proximity, that God is closer to us than we are to our own thoughts. It speaks of intimacy, a tongue of fire rests above their head. A tongue of fire is that picture of purification that comes from proximity. You cannot not reflect the king when you live in close proximity to him. You may not be aware of it because the closer you get to the light, the light reveals, continually is revealing the darkness within us. But through the world, what is seen is the power of the spirit. This is why I have the confidence to preach. I know what an absolute insane mess I am. My wife's like, honey, I know you have a lot of weird tics. Yesterday, all you did was pull your fingers for like, for like the first, were you nervous? I'm like, no, just be aware of your tics. I am very aware of my glitchiness. I mean, look it, I'm a 47-year-old man with a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo. There are, there are problems, real problems. But my prayer and my belief and why I do things for Luis Palau, why I'm speaking to you is because I am absolutely confident that every time I lift Jesus up, I have the entire universe at my back saying yes and amen, that I am not alone when I preach, but I trust that the Spirit will take over. The Spirit is bigger 
than our weaknesses. And our proximity to Christ, our closeness to him, is what allows him to work in and through us. I want to just share one closing story. I had an experience. I'm not, I'm not a charismatic. Well, I reframe that. I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt. <laughs> Which is another way of saying I'm a self-conscious charismatic. Like I really believe in the gifts, I just don't use them. No, that's not what I mean. I, I, <laughs> what it means is that, is that I, want to be, I want to be constantly testing that the spirit I am yielded to is the spirit that is pointing me again and again to Jesus. And I went on this trip to this, this place, HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, and it was to explore, um, have you guys heard of Alpha? And Alpha is actually right now the most effective evangelism tool in the world. Me and Luis Palau, right before he, he died, actually talked a lot about it. He's like, he joked, he goes, Alpha is an amazing evangelism tool for educated white people. That's what he said to me. I'm like, Luis, I don't know if that's fair, but it's pretty funny. Um, but we were, but we, he's like, he's, he was a man who believed any tool that preaches the gospel, use them all. If it brings people to Christ, spoken like a true evangelist, and that's why he saw millions of people come to faith, because he believed as this, as this poor young man from Buenos Aires that if he preached the gospel, Jesus was going to use him, and that's exactly what happened. And, and he was, we were talking about this, and, and I, said, I said, hey, I got to tell you about this, this trip I had. I go to HTB, and, and there's something about that place. Every time, I've been there four times now, it's right in the heart of London, Every time I've gone in that space, I almost immediately start crying. And you can ask my wife, I do not cry. I would argue that the reason I'm a good pastor is because I have zero empathy. Because <laughs> you almost can't afford to have empathy and survive the pulpit. <laughs> How can one maintain the continual criticisms of all the things that people think you ought to be doing? Um, and, and, and so I go in there, I'm like, I start crying. I just like, what is wrong with me? And I refer to that place as that there, it's like a thin space between, where heaven and earth just seem a little bit closer. And I was like, I try to get my head around it. And what I figured out is that it is a community that has been trained to expect to meet with Jesus every time they gather. And the expectancy of the community brings the power of God to that place. And they have this unbelievable prayer life. And Thousands and thousands of people get saved at HTB every year through Alpha. Nicky Gumbel, the founder, he won't even speak anywhere else in the world. He's, I mean, he's so sought after. He will not speak anywhere because he will not miss these 12 weeks. They continue all year long, 12 weeks, taking people through the basics of the Christian faith, watching non-believers come to faith again and again. That's what gives him joy. That's what he lives for. He rides a bicycle. He doesn't drive. He's never without his wife, Pippa, Nikki and Pippa. <laughs> and they're just like these sweet little British, he's Cambridge educated, true British man. I mean, the thickest British accent who smiles the entire time he's talking. But there's just this infectious joy and this sense of the spirit. But they have a massive emphasis that only the spirit of God can save someone. That's exactly what the scripture says. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And so they leave room for the Spirit is the idea. So they say, hey, we want to pray for you pastors who have come from America. We know a lot of you have come here just to explore Alpha, but we, we want to give you an opportunity because we know a lot of you are wiped out. And it was a stressful season for me. Tim Mackey, who started the Bible Project, he resigned 
from Door of Hope, um, my best friend. He taught with me 50% of the time, um, but the Bible Project got so huge so fast, like he had to step down. So he worked for me for five years. So all of a sudden, uh, I lost like this amazing companion in the gospel. I mean, we're still, we're still neighbors, but I mean, it was a massive loss for the church. Uh, and we just got done remodeling a building, which of course I tried to do every single aspect of, ended up with shingles. I mean, I was exhausted. So I, I get to London and, and they're saying, come forward and we will lay hands on you and pray for you. We have people that will pray for you. And I'm like, I'm from Portland and I'm Gen X. I'm like, no way. I just like, I backed up. All these pastors went forward and I backed up to the back of the room and I'm standing there and I just feel my heart heaving. I'm just like, and before I knew it, I'm like, I didn't even like the music. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm just like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And before I knew it, I'm standing in front of the stage, and I just got my head down. There are people around me. Everyone's praying, and I just start sobbing. And I don't even know why I'm sobbing. And then I feel this hand on my shoulder, and I, and I just like, and then I really started crying. I'm like, like, Lord, I'm, I just feel fraudulent. I feel I shouldn't be leading Door of Hope. What am I doing? I'm a crazy artist. I, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And I just felt the spirit. It's the closest to an audible voice I have ever had. This is not something that happens to me regularly. I always say the transfiguration happened once, and then it was back to the valley. <laughs> but I, I feel this unbelievable sense of Jesus just saying, Josh, I love you. You're doing fine. <laughs> it's okay. I, I'm, you're okay because it's not you, it's me. <laughs> it was like this gentle rebuke and this absolute embrace all at the same time. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I just began to pray. I'm like, Lord, I need you. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own. I'm just like, all, it's just like coming out of me. And the hand on my shoulder, I was like, I'm like, man, this is like, I just... I don't know why, but I just like, feel so hot. And I just start sweating. I'm just like, so I turn around and there's no one there. I don't know what that was. I don't know if it was like, it doesn't matter what it was because there is no doubt in my mind that God showed up to minister to me in that moment. And then my friend Dane said he was watching me from the side. He's from California, minister. And he comes over to me and he puts his hand on my chest and he goes, what's going on, buddy? Because he said I was standing over there just like... <laughs> <laughs> like just, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I, so I, I just confess. I said, I'm so tired, man. And he goes, it's okay. Just speak it out. I spoke it out. He wrapped his arms around me. We prayed. And then I was like, I got to get out of here. And so I went down into the little bathroom in this 500-year-old church uh, that was all cobblestone. Literally, the bathroom felt like a dungeon. And I just sobbed my brains out for like five minutes in a stall. And then I, I wiped it off. I'm like, glad that is over. We do not need any more crying crying men here. Um, I come home, and I, I get off the plane, and I go, I go home, and I, and I see Darcy and Hattie are sitting. My, wife, my lovely wife, Darcy's here with me. Uh, she really is, is my better half. Um, my daughter and my wife are sitting on the couch, and I begin to tell them what happened, and I stink and get choked up and start crying again, and then I'm like, I'm just jet lagged, <laughs> and Darcy's like, baby, and Darcy is like, if I am not an empath, she is like 75 empaths crammed into one human being. And so like she just, she feels people's 
feeling so deeply. And she's just like, honey, are you crying? <laughs> she's, she really loves it when I cry. Like, it's like she wishes I would do it more. She finds it extremely attractive. I've been, I've been working on it. I keep trying to think, maybe if I got some, if I got some eye drops when she turns around, I'm just like. <laughs> she goes, are you crying? And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. It's just like, it was such a strange thing that happened, but it was so much comfort. I realized my daughter, who never stops talking, has the gift of monologue, just like me. Um, Hadn't said a word. And I look over at her. She's, I think, 12 years old at the time. And uh, if you can put that picture up of her. This is my daughter, Hattie. Those eyes. And it was this year uh, when that picture was taken that this happened. And she's all red-faced. And she starts, she starts crying. And I think I've upset her. And I'm like, I'm like honey, what's, what's wrong? She goes, I've never seen you cry before. And she's like, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, baby. I'm not, I'm not upset. And she goes, no, it's beautiful. I feel like I've seen you for the first time. You guys, that is what it means to be spirit-filled. It's the world's ability to see us in an entirely new light. I know, friends, like me, you're glitchy. I know everything we do is mixture. I know that there is a sense that you don't know what I've come from. You don't know the brokenness of my history. It's very difficult for me to do this or that thing. And listen, I get all those things, and they're very real. And I would never diminish a person's history. But I will say this. You may have been born that way or born into this thing or that thing, but you have been born again. And if you have Christ, you have all that is necessary to navigate the difficulties of existence. Because Jesus, the freedom he brings, is not freeing us from the difficulty of life. I think it's freeing us from the need to be freed from the difficulties of life because he is with us and within us. And that is when we enter into the promised land. Because the promised land is where the battles are. And he needs us to enter that battle right now. The world needs to see Jesus lifted up in and through you, this church community in this city. You got a bunch of sermon-saturated pagans. You might be one. And I just simply ask you the question, if you were to face Jesus today, would you recognize him? Would you know him the way he knows you? Because this is what separates the one who has truly been born again from the one who does not actually know him. And religion is a dangerous place to live because it satisfies a deep longing in the soul, but it actually prevents us from ever coming to the truth. Only the Spirit of God can break through that, and Jesus wants you to know him. If he said, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, he meant it. And if that's not true, we are wasting our time. Jesus is with you. He wants to empower you. He wants to work through you. The greatest three words that we can speak out loud that comes from the Spirit's presence in our lives are three words that wield absolute authority for the Christian. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you for the ways that you bring your presence into our lives that you often do it through the community of faith. And my prayer right now is that, like Hattie said to me,
that those in this room that just feel an emptiness in their faith, they, they believe that you're the son of God, they, they believe that you died for their sins, they believe that they're saved from hell and they're getting to heaven, but there's no power in their life. There isn't joy. For the fruit of the spirit, which means it's your fruit to produce, is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, only you can produce that in and through us as we yield to you. May we heed those words that this is faith, that I allow Christ to be for me, through me, and in me what I cannot be for myself. And that is accomplished by your presence in our lives, Holy Spirit. And so I just ask you here as a church, if you guys would just extend your hands outward with your palms facing upward. In the scriptures, you see this a lot. And I think it's just a picture of just that we come empty-handed. Lord, you see hands extended. You've given us physical bodies. We want to represent eternal longings. And we just ask, Lord, we're not looking for the weird. We're not looking for the sensational. For there is no greater miracle than the miracle of salvation itself. But Lord, we want to know you. We don't want to just know about you. We're not interested in being a biographer of someone who's dead. We want to know someone who is alive and present. That we're not talking about one who lived 2,000 years ago. We are talking about one who is here right now with us. I pray that your spirit would fall upon this place in power. That there would be an overwhelming sense of your presence. And that your kindness would lead us to repentance. We confess, Lord, that we so often make ourselves God. That we put ourselves where only you belong. Thank you for putting yourself where we belonged on the cross. Thank you for taking our judgment into yourself. Thank you that you are both the judge and the judged in our place. And thank you that you died for the victim and the victimizer. We come to you and we trust in your work. So we ask, fill us, Lord, with your presence that we might be conduits of your grace to a world that is lost. Thank you that it's the world that you continue to seek and save. It's in your name we pray, amen.